Welcome to Faith Bible Church's Midweek in the Word podcast, where we are together seeking to become better readers, hearers, and doers of the Word each week. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Midweek in the Word. Uh, We're thrilled that you're along for the ride with us. If you're a long-term listener, you know my voice, but if you're new to the podcast, you don't. I am Brad Myers, Faith Bible Church's Adult Ministries Pastor and your host on the podcast. And uh, this week, uh, for those that have been with us, you know that a lot of times we have Tom and myself dialoguing about different interpretive principles and how to study the Bible. Um, but this week, we've got a special guest. Tom's taking a little bit of vacation. He's he's out of commission for the holiday this weekend. And I'm I'm thrilled because this week I'm joined by Kyle McClellan. He's one of the pastors at Grace Church in Fremont, Nebraska, uh, and somebody I've met both through the Simeon Trust workshops that Tom and I have attended over the years and also the Gospel Coalition meetings that have been here in town in Lincoln. And so I'm thrilled to have him here on the podcast. I know you'll enjoy getting to hear from him. Uh, Kyle, Thank you so much for your willingness to step onto the podcast and join us in this discussion. Brad, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, well, Kyle, real quickly here, because I know a lot of our listeners uh, likely don't know you. They're not familiar with your current ministry uh, in Fremont. So before before we actually get into this subject, I want to introduce you a little bit to our listeners. Uh, could you fill us in a little bit? What's your story? How did you end up in ministry? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm a, I'm a native, uh, I'm a Fremont native. I'm a free monster. And, uh, when I graduated from high school, swore I was leaving and would never come back. And famous for, last words. Oh yeah. Yeah. For 20 some odd years was, was true to that. And, uh, married a girl from Kentucky. My wife, Amy and I have been married for 25 years and we have, uh, two kids. We have a daughter, Gabrielle, who's 20 and a son, Nathaniel, who's 17. And, mm-hmm. Man, we were really happy uh, living in Lexington, Kentucky, and not even thinking about uh, Nebraska, except to come back on holidays and visit. Uh, but the Lord has this really interesting sense of humor, and uh, <laughs> he 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 gave us a real burden for uh, mm. for my tribe, for my hometown. And so, in July of 2010, we moved back uh, to Fremont and uh, planted. Grace Church. We're a a PCA church. We're part of the Presbyterian Church in America. So uh, as we like to say, we're we're biblically conservative, but we're not angry about it. And that's, (laughs) uh, yeah, we're the, we're the, we're the friendly Presbyterians. Uh, There you go. Yeah. So that's, that's where we are. I I got, I ended up in ministry really reluctantly. Um, Mm. I, I, there were other things I thought I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I was actually called to ministry before the Lord saved me, um, was called to ministry on a short-term mission trip when I was in high school. And then about five or six months later, uh, came to faith in Jesus, was born again. And so I went away to college, uh, Taylor University in Indiana, knowing that God called me to ministry. But I, I, I didn't necessarily have a lot of great models for ministry. And I, I so much of it looked really negative to me. Like I, mm. I would look at those things and go, yeah, I, I'm not that guy. And I don't think I could do that. I, I know I couldn't do it that way. And so I, I really sort of wrestled and struggled all through college. I think I had, uh, when I graduated, I ended up with, I had a double major and two minors uh, because I was changing so often 
what it is mm. that I was going to, going to do. And I crammed, you know, four years into five and, uh, <laughs> but came out of it sort of understanding, Hey, this is, this is what the Lord's called you to do. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for that, but it's, it's not been, uh, it's, it's been a really rich journey, but it's not been a particularly easy one. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting to see the hand of God on different people's lives that way. It, um, but, it is. but you found yourself with a calling to come back to Fremont and, and, right. and plant this now 10 year old church that you're talking about. Tell us, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about Grace Church and your current role there. Well, I'm the, I'm the senior pastor. Um, so I, I, I preaching and, and shepherding are, are the main. So in the PCA, we talk about the ministries of word, prayer, and sacrament, or mm. I think in, in evangelical traditions, we would say preaching and teaching the Bible, overseeing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and, uh, prayer. And then the care, the, just the general caring for of God's people. Um, I'm really fortunate in the PCA. We have a, a shared model of, of leadership. So we have, uh, what we call a session. It's a, it's a group of elders. We have uh, vocational elders like me, guys who get paid for this. And then we have a non-vocational elders. We use the terms teaching elder and ruling elder uh, that come mm-hmm. out of Timothy. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's, it's a joy to be able to work with guys understanding that, you know, it's, I'm not the CEO of a nonprofit organization. Uh, I'm a shepherd and I, I'm a co-laborer with them and we necessarily have different roles to play as we, by God's grace, faithfully oversee and shepherd God's people. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I, I appreciate, um, I've never had the chance to attend your church, uh, but I know I've heard good things about what's going on out there and uh, appreciate your willingness to jump in on this discussion, introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, listeners, if, if you've been around the podcast for a while, you know uh, that over the course of the last few months and, and really the whole year of 2020, Tom's been walking us through a sermon series that he's entitled Route 66, Snapshots from Genesis to Revelation. And if, if you're new to the podcast, you're, you're kind of jumping in on the tail end of this or new to the church, um, then we're just beginning to wrap up that discussion as Tom's been taking us all the way through the Bible. And so each week on the podcast, we like to ask three questions that relate to um, the themes that we've been seeing all the way through the Bible. What did we learn about God? Uh, what did it reveal about uh, mankind or ourselves? And then finally, how does this story, how does this passage point us to the person and work of Christ? And so this last Sunday, Tom in his sermon was, was talking about the Apostle John from the book of Revelation, uh, the last book in the Bible. And, and he, though he wasn't able to join us on the podcast, Tom had a few things that he just wanted to bring back to our attention as listeners. So if you missed his sermon, I'd encourage you to check back out, uh, back on our website, find that sermon, listen through it, or find the podcast and listen through that sermon as you'll, you'll see some of these themes highlighted again. Um, but in relationship to what did we learn about God, uh, Tom just noted that the real theme we see in Revelation is that God alone is worthy of praise, glory, power, and adoration. Um, Christ, when put against the ruling powers of the world, uh, really there's no comparison, and that God is the center of all praise and glory. 
Um, as far as what did it reveal about mankind, uh, it was just a good reminder of what we've been seeing consistently week in and week out, that mankind is decadently sinful and desperately in need of a Savior. Um, and that reminder that Christ fulfills that role relates to our third question as far as it pointing to Christ. Uh, we saw a lot of images of Christ in the book of Revelations, Christ as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Uh, therefore, Tom really highlighted the idea that we're called to worship to witness, and to wait for Christ's return that we see in the book of Revelation. Um, and I just, I just want to say, as we, as we move kind of out of the Route 66 reminder and into our topic for this week, last week on the podcast, I did mention for you listeners uh, that this week's topic and genre uh, was, was likely one that would dismay some of you uh, and one that resulted in an unbridled joy on the part of others, but it's a challenging one. We'll be discussing the literary style or genre of apocalyptic literature. And that was what Kyle was willing to jump in on. And so I appreciate his willingness to join this conversation. Uh, but before we get to the questions, Kyle, uh, listeners, I just, I just have a couple of quick notes. Uh, first, for those of you uh, that are listening that struggle with this idea of apocalyptic literature, literature uh, due to frustration with the bizarre imagery we find in books like Daniel and Revelation, or possibly you're still suffering from PTSD due to the last time you took a chance and brought up your understanding of the tribulation or the millennium with someone in the church, uh, just please be assured real quickly that our discussion will be both civil and hopefully understandable, as we'll be talking about interpretive principles primarily. Secondarily, for that opposite group that's listening, uh, for those of you that have likely gotten out your three favorite books on end times and have been unable to quit grinning since I first mentioned the topic, please know that we're sorry, but we probably won't answer all of your questions either. Uh, we really want the focus of this podcast to be on interpretive principles on how do we approach this genre or literary style of apocalyptic literature. And so we're not going to be going chapter by chapter through Revelation and answering all of the questions you likely have. Um, but Kyle, I, I really just want to say I appreciate your willingness to jump in on this, though I think Tom's being absent this week was by by no accident. I, I think I think he was good with us having this discussion. Um, but this genre, just like every other one we've discussed over the course of the last few months on the podcast, needs to be approached well. So we just want to start out by laying some ground rules here. Uh, what do we mean by the literary style or the genre of apocalyptic literature in Scripture? Well, literary genre refers to the kind of literature that you're reading. And the Bible has several different genres. And the way we read a genre is going to be, uh, or the kind of enjoyment we get, is going to be enhanced by understanding what the genre is and how the genre operates. Let me give an example. Um, if you're reading, say, a newspaper or you're reading some sort of um, reading a newspaper over against reading, say, the National Enquirer, you would understand that while those things both kind of look the same, they're not really the same. Or if you're reading a poem uh, or you're reading uh, one of the wonderful biographies by David McCullough about a historical figure, you understand that how you read that historical biography and how you read poetry aren't one and the same. 
And so apocalyptic literature or the genre of apocalyptic literature is uh, a kind of literature that is poetic in its nature. And I know that sounds strange to say that apocalyptic literature is really poetic, uh, but there are some key features in apocalyptic literature that help us know it when we see it. And those key features really drive us to the conclusion that apocalyptic literature is poetic as a genre. Now, we, we treat it as its own because it's this really unique subset of poetry. But fundamentally, when you break it down, apocalyptic literature is a kind of poetry. Very good. And listeners, you'll recall a few months ago, it's been now, uh, we, we talked about when we were studying the Psalms, the idea of poetic literature and some of the key features in there. So if you don't remember that, I'd encourage you to go back and check that out where we looked at that idea. But Kyle, you mentioned something about key features and structures. Um, help our listeners identify a little bit of what those would be. How do we know we've run into this unique style uh, when we find it in our Bibles? Well, one of the things about one of the interesting things about biblical poetry is uh, biblical poetry, and I'm sure you guys talked about this. Biblical poetry doesn't necessarily rhyme, hmm. but one of the things that it will do is that it will make it'll make use of of images, and in the case of Revelation, it makes use of different scenes, and there are some really vivid and powerful images that confront us in places like Daniel 7, uh, in Jesus' upper room discourse, and then again in the book of Revelation, uh, you see these really vibrant and vivid and powerful images that confront us. Now, because they're images, um, we, we want to we have our eye open to that. And we also want to be wise as we approach them. Uh, one of the things sometimes I think we need to do as we're reading, uh, for example, as, as we're thinking through this idea of these things being poetry, when you get to a book like Daniel 7, uh, which is a, 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 a really beautiful, powerful, fiery, vivid uh, an, an image-filled apocalyptic chapter in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things we want to be careful of is that we don't push too hard on some of those images. And we want to understand, too, that it's not just what the Bible is saying in those scenes. It's also what the Bible is not saying. Hmm. And here's what we mean by that. Uh the Bible and Christianity in particular do not exist in a vacuum. And so all of the religions in the ancient Near East, all of the religions uh, during the time of the New Testament had some sort of, um, this is how the world's going to end and how it's all going to unfold set of myths, fables, or stories. It usually involves some sort of great conflict, which certainly the Bible does as well. And it usually includes the message that says, we're not really sure how this is going to turn out. Uh, for those of you who are comic book 
uh, fans or you're a, a fan of the Marvel Universe, uh, then you know that one of the really interesting things about the movie Thor Ragnarok was that uh, the way you expect it to go gets turned on its head. They're, they're willing to just uh, go ahead and, and, and sacrifice Asgard so that the other realms will be saved. Mm-hmm. And so you, you hear about Ragnarok. You're not sure how it's going to end. Well, that's not true in how the Bible presents apocalyptic literature to us. Uh, we know. In fact, one of the, the things that, that apocalyptic literature in the Bible is conveying to us is that if you want to distill it down to one simple phrase, it's this. God wins. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it at the moment. And our present circumstances may be screaming at us that there is no possible way that that will happen. But apocalyptic literature is a very poetic and vivid and uh, image-filled way to communicate that one basic central theme. I think that's a good reminder, both for our current situation and also as we find ourselves dealing with these styles of literature that uh, we've talked a lot about context on the podcast before listeners remember the large, the large scale picture, the, the big picture of the book informs the small context, big context informs small context and keeping, keeping in mind that idea that God wins is the ultimate theme of apocalyptic literature should direct the way we interpret the specific examples now, Kyle, you've already mentioned a couple of books where we find this sort of thing in the Bible already, but could you, could you help us? Where, where else do we find this idea of apocalyptic literature or style in Scripture? Well, the, there are, I mean, there, there are several places. Uh, certainly Daniel, in terms of the four major prophets, is uh, the primary place we want to go. Uh, there are bits of it as well in Ezekiel. Uh, mm-hmm. In the New Testament, there's, there are two, though— Though Paul, Paul likes to talk about what we would call eschatology, but mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily use apocalyptic literature to convey those things. Uh, Jesus, you know, when he speaks, for example, in Luke 21 uh, about wars and persecutions, uh, about the coming of the Son of Man, all those things, that Jesus is using apocalyptic literature. Uh, and then, obviously, the book of Revelation is, um, is I mean, from beginning to end, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's the poster child for apocalyptic literature. Sure. And likely the one everybody's mind goes to, uh, right. for sure. Right. Okay. All right. Which, so, so, Kyle, we've kind of, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, and that creates a little bit of a problem. And, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that here. I think one of the, one of the mistakes we make is we act like the book of Revelation is the only place in the Bible where this kind of literature exists. Mm. And mm. I think I think we'd be well served to take a different approach. Okay, you're you're going exactly the direction I'd like to go, um, because listeners, you know that we always have to seek to understand a genre, in addition to kind of knowing where to find it and what it comprises of, identifying it correctly. We also have to understand how to uniquely look at it. Uh, in, in, the, in the example that Kyle was given at the beginning, how would you approach the newspaper versus approaching the Inquirer? Uh, so in that way, you're already kind of going that direction, Kyle. 
why do you think we struggle so much when we read these sorts of passages? When, uh, to your point, especially in, in Revelation at the end of the Bible, what, what's our hangup? Well, I, I think we have several issues. I think, I think there are several things that contribute to our struggle. I think the first one is, and these are sort of general things, we live in a culture where we don't read anymore. We skim. Uh, there, there's a wonderful book that came out several years ago entitled uh, Why Johnny Can't Preach. <laughs> it's not a very thick book because the, the punchline answer of why Johnny can't preach is it's because Johnny can't read a book. Now, we'd all go, wait a minute, I can read, I'm literate. No, being a literate person and being a good and careful reader are two very different things. Uh, we skim and we look at the information and go, okay, what do I need to know and what am I supposed to do with this? And historically, in literate cultures, uh, I think our ancestors are looking at us uh, with with serious disapproval, shaking their heads uh, because <laughs> we're, we, we've not been very good inheritors of what is a really rich literary tradition. I think on top of that, then, not just that we don't read, but we skim, we also don't read poetry. I mean, yeah. just generally, you know, when, when's the last time, unless uh, you had a really mean teacher in school who made you memorize, you know, the midnight ride of Paul Revere or, or something of that nature, uh, we, we don't read poetry. So it's, it's a genre that we're not very nimble in. Uh, we're not very competent in it because we don't deal with it much. The third reason I think we struggle is because uh, we don't integrate the whole Bible when we read it. Now, that can be for a couple different reasons. I, I think if you, though, if you look at all of the surveys that people like the Barna Group and others do, the root cause of why we don't integrate the whole Bible when we're reading, say, for example, the book of Revelation is because we don't know the Bible. Hmm. I can't, I can't integrate what I don't know. Um, I was listening several years ago to a fairly well-known uh, evangelical pastor who, by the way, is no longer in ministry, has, has fallen from ministry because of moral failure. And he was making the comment to his congregation that he had no idea that the Son of Man, as Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, that the Son of Man reference was not talking about Jesus' humanity. But instead, Son of Man is probably the strongest and most, most robust affirmation that Jesus makes related to his divinity. <laughs> and the reason he didn't know that was because, and he admitted this to his credit, he'd never read Daniel chapter 7 before. Wow. Because Daniel chapter 7 tells us plainly that uh, <clears throat> the Ancient of Days is handing a kingdom and dominion and authority over to one who's like a son of man. And so when, when Jesus calls himself the son of man, there's a reason why people are ready to pick up rocks and use them. Yeah. Uh, he's 
claiming on the basis of Scripture that he is God. Well, I, th- I think as we come to apocalyptic literature, if we don't know the whole Bible, we can't integrate all of these scenes, and not just apocalyptic scenes, but we can't integrate that the Bible as a whole is teaching us to help us make sense and understand of what's going on in a book like Revelation. So I, I would say we struggle because we, we don't read, we just skim. We don't read poetry. And then we don't integrate the whole Bible. And we don't do that because, quite honestly, we probably don't know it. Uh, we're not very good Bible readers. And we don't read our Bibles. So it's, hmm. it's, it's one of those, you know, we made up by not blocking with a complete lack of tackling. It's a it's a bad news, <laughs> bad news kind of. I mean, it really is the rock in a hard place. Yeah, yeah. I think that's both a, a good challenge for our listeners and and hopefully a helpful reminder uh, to slow down, uh, work to become better readers. Uh, but that's also, uh, listeners, we know that's part of why you're listening to this podcast uh, because you want to become a better reader of the text. You want to know how to interpret God's word better. Uh, So Kyle, as we seek to remedy that issue, that inherent maybe weakness in our reading ability, what are some good interpretive principles um, that we can keep in mind when it, when we come across genres like this uh, that'll help us overcome uh, maybe our natural predisposition? Well, I think the first one is, one of the really amazing things about apocalyptic literature is it's going to expose, for lack of a better term, the framework that you have when you come to the Bible. Uh, I know it, it makes people kind of break out in hives, or you were talking earlier about having PTSD. Uh, you know, when people start to talk about systematic theology, we, we all kind of back up and shake our head and break out in a cold sweat. Um, only, only really nerdy guys who, you know, have great big King James versions of their Bible, uh, <laughs> there you go. care about systematic theology, right? It's, it's, uh, those, they're, they're like the, the Christian version of Star Trek fans. I mean, they're, they're there you like, go. they're like our own Trekkies, but apocalyptic literature really is going to expose the framework or the systematic theology that you don't think you have, but you probably do. And so one of the common mistakes we make is um, we try to cram the text into our framework instead of understanding that there needs to be an ongoing conversation between the framework and the text. And that at the end of the day, the text is infallible and inerrant. My framework is not. So if you come to the book and you're convinced it has to tick these particular boxes, well, you're going to find those, you're going to find those things in the text. But at that point, you're not, you're not letting the Bible be king. Your framework is now king. I think the other, uh, the other piece that we probably need to remember um, in terms of common mistakes is when you, or, or interpretive principles, 
we need to remember the the context in which God's people received these kinds of words from the Lord. So if you think about the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel is not living a happy life in Jerusalem. Daniel is living in exile. Yeah. Daniel will see not just Jerusalem overthrown, but he's going to see Babylon overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Every regime Daniel has ever served tries to kill him at one point or another. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you look at the Upper Room Discourse, one of the things that Jesus talks about is the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, we know from people like Josephus and Roman historians what a cataclysmic event that was in 70 AD. Then you go to the book of Revelation and you understand that John is in exile for the sake of Jesus and his testimony, as he tells us in chapter 1. And the church as a whole is undergoing persecution. So when we understand the context of God's people, when those books were being written, we understand that apocalyptic literature is not there to confuse the people of God. Rather, it's there to strengthen and encourage them. Amen. So if you need, uh, you know, like a six foot tall banner that runs across the entire front of, of the sanctuary of your church to keep track all the things that are going on between Daniel and Revelation and everything else, and you're sitting there going, man, this is, this is, um, you know, this is like calculus or this is, I, 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 no. If you're finding yourself confused by it, you may need to rethink the framework that you're using to try to read the text. Because, listen, God's not trying to fool you. That doesn't mean he's averse to making you work a little bit. But he's <laughs> not trying to confuse you. And so I think when we understand that apocalyptic literature is this rich, vibrant poetry that's filled with these powerful images intended to assure God's people of this one unshakable truth, namely, our God wins, then that should change, uh, it, it should change the color of lenses that you bring to the text as you read it. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to get down into the weeds. I'm not trying to figure out, uh, you know, which empire is represented in the four beasts that pop out of the sea in Daniel 7. But rather, I can come to those things understanding those are rich and powerful images. And at the end of the day, uh, the triune God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, wins. Hmm. Period. Drop the mic. End of story. Uh, and again, as we've said earlier, may not feel like that. Uh, every bit of circumstantial evidence we can look at may point in the contrary direction. But the one unshakable bedrock conviction that the people of God must have is that our God, through his Christ, wins. When we lose sight of that, 
we get we get sideways. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Well, i I hope I hope that this is this is a helpful reminder to you, listeners. I, I know Kyle has said a lot of really helpful stuff. Let me let me attempt to summarize a, a bit of 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 what we've talked about here um, for you before we wrap up uh, for for this podcast episode. Um, keep in mind uh, that apocalyptic literature is this highly stylized, poetic, imagery laden style of literature that the ultimate point of is that Christ wins. God wins at the end of, of the story. Um, and all of the, the imagery and the language is meant to reinforce and direct our attention that way and reassure us as believers. Also remember that one of the challenges that we face as New Testament, as 21st century readers in America, is we struggle to slow down and read intentionally. We struggle with this genre. So as you're reading it, remind yourself, slow down, remind yourself, read intentionally, remind yourself, give yourself time to think about it. But also try and remember uh, much of what Kyle's been saying as far as don't get lost in the weeds. Remember the big picture. Remember to keep the main things the main things in a text like this. Um, that God isn't trying to hide it from you, uh, but, but it does take some work and a little bit of attention on our part. Uh, Kyle, thanks again so much for your thoughts on this subject. Any final thoughts that you would like to re- leave our listeners with as we wrap up this subject? No, I, I, well, I would just say this. I think one of the things that God's people are going to have to do as we think about living faithfully for Jesus and bearing a true testimony to the gospel in the world in which we find ourselves is we're going to have to take, I think, what's going to feel like some fairly drastic steps to be people of the book. Uh, we don't live in a book culture. We live in a video culture. We live in an image culture. And so I, I, one of the things I think reading well requires of us is it requires us to look at all kinds of commitments in our lives and start to make some hard decisions. You know, if, if you, my, my son is a swimmer, uh, he's actually a very good swimmer, but being good at swimming means that there are a whole lot of things he has to say no to. I think God's people, as they want to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, are going to have to start really asking some hard questions and saying no and, and sometimes the things you have to say no to, they're not bad, mm. but they're not things that lend themselves to this kind of singular pursuit of being uh, a faithful disciple and a faithful witness and a good reader of God's word. So mm. I, I, I think, I, I just think we need to stop and ask ourselves some hard questions about what the cost of discipleship might look like as we think about not only our intellectual pursuits, but also in terms of uh, what our calendar and uh, what the reminders we put on our phone, what are those things speaking to and what kinds of priorities 
are they conveying? Because they are conveying priorities. Yeah. We, we simply need, I think we need to slow down and be more intentional about them. Yeah. It's that classic adage that, uh, give me your, give me your checkbook and give me your calendar. And I can tell you what's important <laughs> to you in your life. Absolutely. Uh, good reminder. I, yeah. And I think the, the third thing I would add to that is, uh, what are you thinking about? Yeah. You know, I, th- I think the question of what we're thinking about is a really telling and convicting one. Now I'm not saying you got to walk around all day and be like, I'm, I'm just thinking about Jesus or, you know, get into some kind of, you know, Zen state of, you know, sort of Jesus is this mantra you're comp- you're repeating over and over. Yeah. But I would say, you know what, if you can go through the day and you're not thinking about your union with Christ or the gospel or the beauty of the God who is one and three and three and one, you, you probably need to take, a, again, a really good hard look at the reality of what you profess. Hmm. Good encouragement. I appreciate the word on that. Kyle and and listeners, I know Tom has mentioned it a couple of times. Our next sermon series that he's looking to go into in January um, is related to what is the cost of discipleship? What does it mean to follow Christ? How do we make Christ the center of our whole lives? So stay attuned for that because I really appreciate what what Kyle is saying and what he shared uh, with us. Um, well, listeners, as as we wrap up this discussion, it wouldn't be complete without talking about where we're going this next Sunday. And I, I love how Kyle finished up the discussion because this coming Sunday, um, after a lot of time in the text, after walking through most of the story of the Bible, we are hitting on the person and character of Jesus, which some of you may be saying, finally, even though we've been touching on how each story points us to Christ over the course of the year. Um, And actually, I will be preaching this Sunday rather than Tom on that subject. And so uh, as I was mulling over and prepping for Sunday's message and and wrestling with uh, what am I looking forward to preaching on? One of the things that really came to my mind is I'm, I'm really looking forward to taking really our first crack at trying to pull the last 11 months together. Uh, you know, each week on the, in the sermons, we've been asking, how do these things point us to Christ? So this Sunday, uh, we kind of finally get the chance to explore that large story in a little way. And I'm really looking forward to some unique ways to present that idea also as we move into the, the season of Advent um, and look at this idea. Um, I'm still wrestling with some interpretive questions, though. Uh, one of the things is I'll be teaching out of John 1, which highlights Christ's divinity and incarnation. Um, and we'll be talking a lot about the idea of Emmanuel that we see in Scripture, that God with us idea. Um, and one of the things I'm still wrestling with a bit is, despite the significance of this concept all over in Scripture, it's not used very prevalently, um, which is something I'm still wrestling with a little bit as far as why that is. Um, but the one thing I want to really highlight is, is how you can prepare your heart for this message. Um, I'd really encourage you to come on Sunday or, or watch on Sunday uh, prepared to marvel at Christ's grace, mercy, and love, more than even looking necessarily for a to-do application. Uh, while I hope this message will be applicable, and I'm sure it will be, um, I want it to be more about Christ and what He's done for us uh, than it is about us. Um, so I want to just leave you uh, with the words of John 1.14 that are really a theme um, of the message, uh, where John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I'd encourage you to meditate on that and prepare your hearts in that way for Sunday's message. And thanks again for joining us for another episode on the podcast. Remember, if you're following along in the weekly reading, preparing for the messages each week, take a look at John 1 verses 1 through 18. We'd love to hear your questions or comments as you read through that text in preparation for Sunday's message. If you're looking for more information on this subject, a couple of recommendations that I'd make. The first is the Bible Project has a great video on this subject. It's entitled How to Read the Bible, Apocalyptic Literature, a good introduction and uh, rehearsal of what we've talked about a little bit this this week. Um, Secondarily, I'd encourage you to check out Fee and Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. We've talked about that, that resource in the past. It's got a good section on apocalyptic literature as well. And if this resource, if this podcast has been helpful, please share it, comment on it, or rate the podcast and help others find it as well. As you continue to prepare over the course of the week, just know that we in the leadership of the church will be praying for you and praying that you would be not only a good reader and listener, but a good doer of God's word as well. And we do hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. Hopefully you're getting the chance to celebrate and appreciate all the blessings that God's given to us, um, not least of which being the revelation of his word. And we hope you join us in next week on Midweek in the Word. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. As you're reading this week, be encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth.